Well, hi, my name is Xenia Makoski, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues. Here with me today is Elizabeth Rule, a scholar on Indigenous Studies and Assistant Professor of Critical Race, Gender, and Cultural Studies at American University. Professor Rule is a proud member of the Chickasaw Nation and is currently on campus giving a lecture entitled Seeking Justice for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. So Professor Rule, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. To start off, I'm interested a little bit about your background. So you're a member of the Chickasaw Nation and you travel across the world educating students and the general public on issues surrounding Native American community and identity. Why do you feel called to be an educator and public speaker for this cause? Yeah, so most of the issues that I work on are issues that I just became aware of through my experience as an indigenous woman in this country. And my inspiration into going into higher education was really that I knew I wanted to affect positive change for and with Native people. And I, I was very inspired to potentially become an attorney, a lawyer, because I saw that as a really good way where that positive change was happening, indigenous issues were being advanced. But through my own experience, actually, at the undergraduate level, I connected with some of my professors, scholars, and, and mentors who showed me the transformative you know, power of education and looking at the world in, in an entirely new way and the, the analyses that can be done to understand why things are the way they are. And, and so I made it really my mission to become that force for other people, for students and for members also of the general public who may have varying levels of familiarity with Native issues. Mm. I want to transition and talk a little bit about specifically your research and articles that you've written. In your 2018 article that you wrote, Seals, Selfies, and the Settler State, Indigenous Motherhood and Gendered Violence in Canada, you write that Indigenous women proved to be a primary target for the colonizing project carried out by settler campaigns. So my question is, why are Indigenous women in particular a target for the ongoing violence of settler colonialism even more vulnerable than Native men? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that question really goes back to, you know, a fundamental understanding of intersectionality and the ways that Native women experience multiple marginalizations because of their identity. It's absolutely worth mentioning, too, that non-binary and two-spirit and LGBTQ members of the Indigenous community also face serious disproportionate levels of violence as well. Native women in particular are, uh, I would identify as a threat to settler colonialism because of our power, because of the power that we hold traditionally in our societies. And, and that was really at odds with this patriarchal vision that was brought to this country through settler colonialism, where women only have status through the men that they're attached to, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands, and, and so on. And so there's been a real dehumanization of Native women. And so all of these various factors together have really given rise to tremendous violence, unspeakable violence against Native women. Mm. And in the same article I noticed that you particularly focus on how gendered violence is influenced by women's role as a mother. 
Why are native mothers in particular susceptible to violence due to their parental role? That particular article that you're referring to was really about an indigenous woman who was the target of violence primarily through the digital sphere, threats of violence and threats of removing her child and, and harming her child as well. As a result of her involvement in an international indigenous campaign that sought to raise awareness around the importance of sealing cultures and the difference between sustainable subsistence living and hunting versus commercial exploitation of seals in particular in this case. And so what happened was this native woman who has somewhat of a public profile, she's an artist and she's quite accomplished and, and so she has this public profile and she posted a photo of her child laying next to a recently harvested seal. And so what I'm really talking about when I think about indigenous motherhood through this example is that through the relaying of this photo, she was saying not only that she practices this traditional culture, but that she's teaching the next generation of Native children who are going to grow up knowing who they are as Native people, knowing their traditional lifestyles, knowing indigenous values, right, of relating to the world, human and non-human. And so for that reason, I really identify motherhood in this particular article as an intersection and, and as a point of violence because she's doing that work of intergenerational transmission of knowledge and identity. And fundamentally, settler colonial theory holds that that existence is a challenge to the settler state. Transitioning a little bit about the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Movement, which you're specifically here to talk about, I want to talk about some of the barriers and reasons that this information isn't usually spread with the public. Most activists within the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women campaign usually blame the lack of government initiative or media bias or poor relationships between tribal leaders and the U.S. government for the lack of accurate reporting and media coverage. In your opinion, what are the biggest barriers that prevent accountability for the murder of Native women and public silence for the issue? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and there's really so many factors at play. The first I have to point to is the undermining of tribal sovereignty through legislative acts, through Supreme Court decisions, through policy efforts by the United States to limit tribes' ability to exercise jurisdiction over their traditional territories. And because of that, oftentimes we see legal loopholes, perpetrators who are able to act and carry out crimes with impunity. And so that's the first I absolutely have to identify is consistent efforts to undermine tribal sovereignty and in particular that jurisdictional element. Another, even if we shift gears a little bit, would be the reporting issue, the data. And in many cases that goes back to racism fundamentally. 
and a failure to understand who Native people are in this country, the reliance upon stereotypes that Native women look a particular way or have particular names, and also the idea, you know, that some law enforcement officials have had that if a Native woman is the subject of a violent crime or gender-based violence, that that is somehow the result of her actions, that she's culpable which of course is horrifically sexist and racist together. So those are just a few of the many intersecting factors that contribute to this transnational problem. You mentioned government initiative and how there has been silence. Secretary of the Interior Deb Haaland announced several new initiatives to account for the disappearance of Native women, including the formation of the Missing and Murdered in Unit, within the Bureau of Indian Affairs Office of Justice Services, and she also, when she served in Congress in 2020, um, was sponsored the Non-Invisible Act. What is your reaction to Secretary Holland's initiatives, and is this enough action by the federal government, or if not, is the United States at least on the right path forward with the issue? Yeah, I, I absolutely stand behind Secretary Holland's initiatives. I think she is doing tremendous work for indigenous people and representing indigenous people at that high federal level. And it's, it's monumental that she's there and, and she has a firsthand account and understanding of these issues that affect our communities. So we're very fortunate to have her in this position. Is it enough? No, no single piece of legislation, no initiative, is going to solve this issue. This is a structural issue. And there are fundamental aspects of our society that would have to change in order to see a significant decrease in violence. Something as fundamental, again, is racism, sexism, dehumanization, colonization. These are, these are not single events and they, can, they can't be rectified with single events either. These are structural elements at play. But that said, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about good, positive change to come from these efforts. Mm -hmm. I believe we need more of them. And I, with that said, I think we're absolutely on the right direction. Any mitigation of, of harm is wonderful if we can achieve it. Speaking of systematic changes or structural changes that have to have in the country, do you see that seeking justice for Native women starts with addressing the root of violence, or do you think it first starts with trying to create public awareness? I think these things have to go hand in hand. So for example, 10 years ago, or even maybe five years ago, maybe even less, it wasn't widely known in the American mainstream that there was an issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls there wasn't the hashtag MMIW yet. And I do think that the increased visibility is good, you know, that people are more aware of these subjects, that they can lend their support behind bills in Congress, that they can vote with these issues in mind, and that they can even do the work internally of challenging things like implicit bias, right, or stereotypes that we have. These are all positive efforts, right, that come out of public awareness. That said, though, again, I don't think it's sufficient.
we're dealing with grisly crimes here happening on a mass level for the course of well over a hundred years, hundreds of years. And that, again, takes real transformative change of locating why Native women are dehumanized, why Native women are targeted in violence, and not only then identifying it, but actually doing something to change those values, those systems, those fundamental ideas that we have that lend themselves, again, to, to ultimate death. But what other resources or methods or campaigns are currently being utilized today by the public or organizations to help create public awareness or even lobby for that government support for the missing and murdered indigenous women movement? So again, you know, there are a couple of, of pieces of legislation recently that have gone through that seek to redress gender-based violence, particularly against Native women. And oftentimes that's something that members of the general public don't know about. We have this idea that Native people exist historically rather than in the contemporary moment. And then simultaneously, uh, we have this idea that Native people are just these fringe cultural groups, sort mm -hmm. of out of sight, out of mind. We don't oftentimes in the general public think about Native people in places like Congress and in the Supreme Court. And again, with increased representations through Deb Holland and, and others and more pieces of legislation, that's slowly starting to change. But I would say something that folks can do absolutely is keep an eye on when these issues do come to the Supreme Court or to the floor of Congress, because it, it is, you know, somewhat regular. And also, it's, it's really necessary that people not limit their understanding of this missing and murdered indigenous women and girls issue to just that. It's tied up broadly in indigenous issues, in tribal sovereignty, in indigenous governance. And all of these things really have a strong interconnection. So I would encourage people to just become more educated and aware of those interlinking systems. And again, how a piece of legislation that maybe isn't explicitly connected to this issue can empower communities, for example, to make changes that do provide protections for women or seek justice after a crime has occurred. I noticed throughout our discussion, you've mentioned stereotypes a lot, and that seems to have had a big impact, maybe directly or indirectly, on your research and certainly your education efforts. What are some of the most common stereotypes, I think you've been hinting at them, that you hear regularly on the disappearance of Native women, or on the Native American community in general? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it's not an exaggeration to say that it, multiple people have expressed their shock and surprise that Native people exist today. I, I'm serious, and it, it's laughable, but, you know, it's a laugh that can turn into a cry. Uh, because, I mean, there are, there are sizable portions of the population think that all Native people died when the United States was being settled, and that Native people have been conquered and eradicated. So, 
well, you know, I guess that's ground zero, right? <laughs> uh, we are still alive. <laughs> but then as you move on up, you know, you encounter different types of stereotypes. So, okay, maybe native people are here, but you know, they're not in cities. They're not integrated into American society. They're again, sort of out of sight, out of mind, on a reservation somewhere, living without technology, all living in teepees. So we have a flattening, right, of the diversity of tribal cultures. And again, an idea that native people aren't really here, aren't really part of the conversation. So, I mean, you have everything from that forward, if you can imagine that. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen at that general public level. And I'm happy to say that I think it, it is happening. Places like Teen Vogue and the New York Times are writing about Native issues. Hulu is releasing shows with Native cast members and writers and producers. And I think this is all doing that work slowly but surely. And all of that, I think, is going to have a positive effect and challenging, again, some of those fundamental notions that ultimately, in the worst of cases, can, can lead to violence. Specifically regarding Indigenous women, is there usually some type of common stereotype or is there anything that you commonly encounter within this particular community? Yes, definitely. Um, definitely the stereotype of Native women as sort of party girls, as being involved with drugs and alcohol, even prostitution in some cases, other forms of sex work, and even being runaways. That's something we hear oftentimes in conflict between the families of Native women who have gone missing and law enforcement that they report it to is she's gone, we don't know where she went, and this comeback of, oh, well, she's a Native woman and she's gone, she must have run away, or maybe she's off on a bender, mm -hmm. or just this idea that Native women are not true to their word, or that, again, these law enforcement officials would know the character of this woman more so than her friends and family. So those are just some of them, and, and other scholars have done work actually looking at the character assassinations of Native women when they are found in the worst of cases to have been murdered in very similar ways to what we see in the cases of police violence, right, against people of color. This character assassination, right, of, oh, you were committing a crime, you were truant, you were wearing a hoodie, you look suspicious. Oftentimes those same sorts of character assassinations happen in the depictions of Native women. I want to give listeners something positive that they can do. So as someone like me who has no Native American heritage and I have no immediate connection to the Indigenous community, I'm curious to know how an individual can play a role in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women campaigns. Are there ways that individuals from non-Native backgrounds can get involved with the movement or, in other words, how can individuals serve as allies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we need allyship on a variety of levels. I always encourage people, again, to just become more educated about these subjects. It's appalling to me that we don't teach tribal governance as part of our primary school lessons on government and, and civic participation. So just learning more about Indigenous governance, understanding and breaking down some of those stereotypes. 
learning the land that you live, work, and, and occupy, the indigenous communities that have a historical and often cases a present relationship with that land base. Of course, social media is important, so raising awareness about these issues through social media is good. It can also be a great place for you to engage in dialogue with others. And I always encourage people to follow indigenous content creators too who are talking about these issues, native journalists, native authors, native news sources, native politicians, to have a variety of indigenous voices weighing in on these issues. Before we conclude, I just wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you want listeners to be aware of or that you want to advocate for when it comes to this topic. Again, there's going to be a recording of my talk tonight, yeah. so if anyone listening would like to learn more, I would encourage you to check out that future recording. Also, just if anyone's interested in engaging with me directly, I can be reached through social media. My Twitter is at eruledc, or I also have an Instagram presence, which would be erule, period, the dot, dc. Um, so, you know, if anyone ever wants to get in touch, that's how. And I post about these issues, too, so it could be a connecting point for folks. That concludes our interview. So thank you so much, Professor Rule, for meeting with me and coming to Dickinson and giving the lecture this evening. We're looking forward to it. Thanks so much for the conversation.